Hello and welcome to Local Wool, a podcast for conscientious makers. I'm Anastasia Williams, and this is episode 14. Midwest Sheep Sharing, and she's also the author of the book Raw Material. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm excited. So let's just kind of start with the basic question. Can you just tell us about yourself and what you do? Sure. I live in San Francisco, actually, even though I spend a lot of time on the road, and I shear sheep, I write. And I also do some workshops and teaching and public speaking. And this year, I may try to turn some surplus fleeces um, that I have had spun up into a yarn line, but we'll see. So that pretty much covers it. Oh, cool. Um, so you're going to do a, like a yarn line. Is that you, Are you a buyer as well? Do you buy wool when you shear? From others, yes. So I have fleeces that I've sheared that my customers don't want to keep and I keep the nice ones and have them, you know, milled and spun in Ukiah about two hours North of my house. And then I've also purchased the same sort of fleeces from other shearers. Okay, cool. That's Which really since they got them free, right? It's not yeah. <laughs> usually a terribly expensive purchase of a byproduct really. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Um, so how did you, how did you first start with sharing? I, I started in 2013, and I always say I was propelled by this terrible combination of urban hubris and naivete. Um, I was totally unfamiliar with agricultural labor, which is a whole different kind of labor. <laughs> so <laughs> two, two moments really combined to plant the idea of learning how to shear uh, more firmly in my mind. The first was The Knitter's Book of Wool by Clara Parks, mm -hmm. which, you know, makes that connection between the necessity of sheep shearing and the availability of more interesting types of yarn really explicit. And then at the inaugural 20, 2012 uh, Fiber Shed Wool Symposium, there was an event that included a panel of sheep shearers speaking. And I spent 45 minutes or so listening to them talk about their work and how it's another dying art. And then I listened to farmers in that audience talking about how they have trouble finding a sheep shearer. And since I was miserable in my job, the urban hubris popped up in my mind and it sounded like, hey, maybe that's something I can do. <laughs> so sure. utterly and completely ignorant of the work <laughs> I was facing, signed up for shearing school because it seemed like the logical next step. <laughs> that's how it started. Hey, listen, I relate to this. This is great. So, <laughs> so what were you doing prior to, to that? I was an engineering director at a software company. Wow. Oh my goodness. So this is like full, total full circle. Yeah. I'd been programming for 20 years. My grandfather worked at the defense department and he taught me when I was four, which for my generation was pretty early. Yeah. And amazing. It's actually, he probably could have done one of the best things he could have for you by giving you a really good skill that is now relevant and very much needed. Right. Right. <laughs> which also would play really nicely into sharing because that is also relevant and very much needed. Yes. And, and, and a lot more fun. <laughs> Oh, that's really neat. So do you also, do you still do programming or are you just doing? No, no. Okay. Not at all. Except, well, well I think I'm, if, if we talk about uh, the co-op uh, later on, I've done some work recently, but specifically for farmers and wool people who are the, the only people who get my tech skills now. <laughs> oh, sure. Which is really great though, because it seems like the more that I talk to the, I mean, they just don't have the time to do it themselves. Nope. Nope. And it's and unfair to ask anyone who's a farmer or rancher to do more labor. <laughs> right. Don't, yes. Don't do that. <laughs> exactly. So that's really great, actually. So that's Thanks. super, super helpful. Um, so we, I mean, we know about sheep sharing in general, those of us who 
like yarn. But I mean, there is a lot more to it than just the actual, like you've got a sheep in your hands and you're shearing the fleece. Um, so what do you typically find that the job involves? You're so right. And, um, you know, I have to say it's, it's kind of sad, but true that 90% of small flock sharing is not sharing (laughs) on a large commercial sharing job. By contrast, sharing is 90% of what you're doing. And now it's like 10% when you have, when you do small flock sharing and have your own business. So I think most shearers would probably say that scheduling and general administrivia are a huge part of the job. Answering phone calls, emails, and text messages, finding out the details of the job, all of that, balancing the seasons and the calendar with the logistics of our driving routes is very time-consuming, and it's a huge part of the business. And then equipment, so equipment selection and maintenance, just knowing your equipment, knowing the right comb and cutters for the sheep that you're facing. So there are differences, for example, between... um, kind of, you know, non, non fine wool sheep and fine wool sheep. Um, and the conditions you're facing climatically. So if it's winter or the sheep are very, very dirty or dusty, you're going to need different tool setup than you would if it were a dry balmy day without, you know, without freezing temperatures. So there's that. And driving, driving is a lot of it. It's often two to four times the amount of time I actually spend sharing the sheep especially as my sharing has gotten faster and cleaner and the traffic has gotten worse and then setting up properly. So I work, I work to improve and refine this every year, but no matter what I do, especially with new customers, getting the appropriate animal handling set up, the sharing station, the proper setup for my equipment with sufficient light and extension cords to power sources, having the sheep secured correctly. I have built so many pens and shoots Um, and then a lot of education. So folks naturally have questions about their sheep or something they saw on the sheep's body or something they're seeing in their behavior. And even though I'm not a vet and I'm technically not qualified to do those kinds of things, they know I've seen thousands of sheep. And so they, they ask and I'm happy to help. And then finally there's related work like horn trimming, hoof trimming, um, holding the sheep, especially while my sometimes elderly customers administer a vaccination or an oral drench or something like that that's all all part of the job (laughs) wow yeah that is that's a whole lot so how much how much would you say like a sheep when you've got it in your hands how long would you say typically typically I know they're probably got different varying lengths how long would you say you typically have them in your hands provided they are well behaved (laughs) um a lot that all depends. I'll give you a range, you know, it's four minutes to 20 and it depends on their size and their condition. So obviously an 80 pound Shetland, my favorite two to four minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then a 300 pound Suffolk, uh, that hasn't been sheared in three to five years really different situation. I, I have to change how I'm handling that sheep. I have to spend more time moving it around sheep that have had multi-year wool growth. Um, in particular, I have to be just extremely careful and slow because wool is really heavy, right? So any spinner who has bought a single raw fleece in the grease, you know, lanolin is a lot of a part of a fleece and it's heavy oil. So, you know, a fine wool fleece might be 15 to 30 pounds, you know, and every year that sheep grows that many pounds and it pulls their skin up. So if I haven't, if that sheep hasn't been sheared in three years, it might have 40 odd pounds of fleece or something pulling, literally pulling its skin up into my handpiece with the weight of the wool that I've just sheared away. So, yeah. So the technique I've perfected for that is to go very slowly and actually... I hold the, the, the wool down from the top and I share underneath it row by row by row to not cut the sheep, to be able Mm. to leave its skin flat. So that's like, that's the high end. But when, you know, the sheep's been sheared regularly and it's not too huge, you know, four or five, six minutes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that seems, that seems understandable, I guess. I don't think that seems like out of the realm of possibility. 
is what I'm thinking. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, I've shared on cruise where everybody, like everybody but me was doing a sheep every two minutes. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So I'm slower. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there's something to be said for that too, right? I mean, sometimes there's, Mm -hmm. and it depends on, I imagine it depends on the job too, because if you are shearing a sheep that you need that fleece to be left intact for a hand spinner, then you are going to be slower to do a better job. Yes. And when I have, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're on a five day job and you have to really share a hundred or 200 head a day per person to get through the job, but that's not most of my job. So if I have 10 or 20 sheep, I don't have to, I don't, I, I actually don't really have an incentive to be fast. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's not that time frame. Um, so, okay. So you said that an 80 pound Shetland is your like favorite to share. Yes. Um, do you have any other favorites? Anything 150 pounds and smaller <laughs> to tell you if it's like a normal size Jeep. Um, the, the two, I'll, I just can't lie. The 250 to 300 pound meat sheep are getting really hard on my body. Oh my um, gosh. Those, but yeah, just about anything that has been regularly sheared and is not twice as much as I weigh is great. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. So what is, what are some of the most common breeds that you see? I mean, I'm sure you see all kinds, but are there any that kind of come back again and again? Yeah, I do. I do see a lot because, you know, as at least coastal California and Oregon are pretty mild. So a lot of sheep breeds do well. Um, And then the range sheep are kind of all the same. So near me, I see a lot of baby doll South Downs, Suffolk, which are meat sheep, um, and then in the, among the fiber community I share for, I have a lot of Navajo Churro, Jacob, and Icelandics. Oh, that's cool. Because some of those are... They're rare. As, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's really neat. Yeah. And we actually have um, one of the people, you know, it's nice because some of the people who are who are breeding and stewarding the Navajo Churro, like the Icelandic, those sheep have to be sheared twice a year. And so it's really sweet that those folks now say, I won't even sell you sheep unless you know you have a shearer who will shear them twice a year. So people contact me and say, I know this sounds weird. I don't have them yet. But if I did get them, (laughs) would you come to this location? Because this person's not getting you to even sell them to me (laughs) if I won't shear them. And I, I love that. I love that. But I like, you know, Navajo Churro and Jacob. It's funny when I was discussing with the publisher about my book, I use that label primitive breeds, right? Because that's what we call them in the fiber community, in the sheep world. And we mean a good thing. We mean like they're smart, they're good mothers. And she's like, that is a right, that's like an ethnic slur (laughs) against Native Americans. I'm like, no, 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 I don't mean that. I mean, it's a, no, it's, she's like, is there another word we can use? And I'm like, no, I loved, I love working with all the, what we call the primitive breeds because they are generally a more typical size. They're quite hardy. They have great mothering instincts. They often lamb easily. They have really amazing fiber. They haven't all been, you know, they're, they have colors in their fiber. Like it's a good thing. So those are, I really love the Jacob and the Navajo churro and Icelandic for fiber sheep. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and I, I wonder because primitive, it'd be kind of the same thing as heritage in some ways, right? Because sometimes sometimes the heritage sheeps would be considered that. But when you think of the primitive, you're kind of thinking of the ones that are a little bit less hands-on. Mm-hmm. Like they're more, oh, I can't even think of a better word for it. They're just not as heavily domesticated, I say. Like, yeah. Like yeah. They're, they're more hardy um, instincts haven't been bred out. Yes. There we go. Okay. Perfect. So, um, how would you say, so, cause if, cause you've been doing this for seven years, is that right? This is my eighth season. Yeah. Okay. Your eighth season. So now I imagine that over time, the way you do things has changed as you continue to learn about, well, just kind of learn the hazards of the job, the different aspects of the job, the different elements that you have to deal with. So how have you changed the way that you've done business as a shearer from the start to 
today? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I hope your readers will find it, your, your listeners, sorry, will find it interesting too. Because um, it's to me been the hardest part, right? At a certain point, pulling the sheep and sharing the sheep is, is some of the easiest stuff you do. Running the business, I did not know about. And there wasn't a lot to model on, right? I couldn't find how a lot of small flock shearers were really pricing things or doing their business. And everything you learned was sort of in your, as you know, having been, your shearing school manual is geared toward the commercial industry, like working on a crew, having large volumes of sheep, having fine wools. So for my first several jobs, I was doing a combination of apprenticing and 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 taking small jobs. And I honestly didn't believe I was worth paying at all. So, I mean, I was offering and expecting to work for free. Never do this. Anyone who is listening, that's all about my low self-esteem and imposter syndrome. So don't, don't let that show up in your business. But, you know, I was actually working at a loss. You know, if you look at like mileage and your equipment costs, but I thought, oh, I'm learning, I'm learning. But other shears are like, you know, fortunately my customers and the shears with whom I was apprenticing were like, this is unacceptable. And they paid me anyway. So that's, oh, that's nice. They're like, um, no, you still work really hard. And I say, right, you'll never work as hard as you do on your first 100 Jeep <laughs> ever. Sure, sure. Um, and then I implemented, you know, after those kind of initial getting started things, I implemented a fairly standard model, which is a ranch call or a farm call, which is the cost of showing up and setting up. And some of that's often based on distance or drive time, not which are not always related if you have California traffic, distance and drive time. Mm-hmm. And then and then a per head shearing fee. So among shearers, <clears throat> it's pretty typical that the fewer sheep someone has, the higher the per head charge will be, as we have to make it worth our time to show up. Whereas on a commercial job, right, with thousands of sheep, you might make $3 a head because you're going to make money on volume or $5 a head. And that's a $500 day if you can share a hundred. But in that, you know, if you, if you're going to make that work for a smaller number of animals, you have to charge, I used to charge 10 to $15 a head for a small job. I think it was like six sheep or less or something and a ranch call of 45 to $75. And I tried to make 25 or $50 an hour, half of which as a business owner is taxes. Cause we pay right. Like our payroll tax that somebody's employer would normally pay. So Mm. I didn't succeed on hitting that 25 or $50 an hour on every job. A lot of, and a lot of that was because of all the non-sharing work I was doing. Right. Sure. So then after a couple of years of that, I went to keeping that model, the ranch call plus the per head fee, which, and the per head, you know, went down as your sheep numbers went up. And then I added a minimum of like, I think it was $125 or $150, no matter how many sheep you had. Like, I have to have a minimum charge because I'm not making it if you have two to four sheep and a long drive, for example. sure. Yes. So then after a couple of years of that, which is recently, so end of last season, and now my season here with our mild climate, it used to be like... February or March through June was really busy. And now I can, I work like February through November, um, less, less intensely than, than some folks with a smaller season. But at the end of last season, I realized I was really starting to dread this sharing season coming, which is so weird for me because I am the happiest when I am sharing. So I'm like, what's kind of behind this? And I took a lot of time over November and December to really think deeply about my business, which I guess, you know, a lot of us don't do. And I thought about what I disliked the most. And it was no, you know, no shame, no blame, not on me, not on my customers. Like what is making you the most miserable? And the things I settled on were all the not fun things that I just didn't get paid for. And that was these custom estimates, right? So people would fill out my sharing request form. And I would look at where they lived and I would calculate drive times and mileage. And then I would look at the number of sheep and I would figure out the condition of the sheep and how many were rams and how many hadn't been sheared before and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd come, I'd spent all this time on these pretty elaborate, very custom estimates. And then as we all know, right, no plans ever pan out because with sheep, we make plans and sheep laugh, right? <laughs> that day you show up like the sheep might not be in and so all these custom estimates like required a ton of time and maybe a bunch of back and forth and Q&A with customers and they were completely useless like absolutely wasted time and then the other piece was that 
you know, all that other stuff, which was that 90% of a given job was often not sharing. So I was like, well, this is on me to fix. Like if I just want to do straight up sharing, I can go on more commercial crews, but <laughs> here's an idea. <laughs> I can also better design my services for the customers I actually have. <laughs> Yeah. You know, if you need help building shoots and hanging lights and you sustain my business and I can better help you by aligning like my expectations and services to reality, I should do that. So then I came up with a $100 an hour, which sounds like a lot. It's not flat rate on site only. Don't even charge for drive time. I'm not even worried about figuring that out. It's going to get covered. You know, it's going to wash out basically. And then that just covers whatever I have to do on site that day. Okay. Education, like if you had a couple people who wanted a private sharing lesson and you wanted me to help vaccinate and you want some hoofs trimmed, you know, it's all just going to get done at the flat rate. Okay. And then, you know, basically half that is taxes. So. Sure. That's the model I've shifted to and we'll see. And I think the nice thing is that, you know, I thought I was going to, it's funny when I looked at the math and the, the estimates that I was doing. For different customers this year, I actually thought that that hundred dollar an hour would would raise my rates. But for my folks with small flocks who are always super prepared, we're like they're ready, and I show up and share. Their prices are actually going down, and I realized, oh hey, that's actually pretty cool. Because my customers who have really done the work of improving their setup year on year on year, their prices go down, and they kind of get rewarded for their efforts. So that's we both benefit, right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's yeah. great. That's awesome. So we'll see. That, that's like the evolution of the business structure and pricing. And I hope it helps somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, the other thing that I know about the way that you kind of shifted things is that now um, you are kind of treating full sheep differently. Um, and can you explain like what that means, what that is, and why a full sheep is such a big deal for sharing? Yeah, like nobody's going to like me <laughs> after I say this. Um, so yes, full sheep are a problem. So there's a, in addition to like um, my my rate change, I, I, I changed some policies, right? So I had, I had a post called like New Year, New prices, new service, new everything or something like that. So it announced that $100 on-site flat rate, but the full sheet policy is has come from um just more and more and more and more I'm I'm getting full sheep. So so I'll tell you why we ask them not to be full and then the problem. So sheep have a their ruminants. They're digestive system overall is called a rumen and there's some fat it's fascinating the science of it is fascinating but the total weight of that ruminant system full is about six gallons and sometimes more so if you I tell everybody imagine if you laid on your floor and you asked like your friend or partner to fill up six gallons of milk and lay it on your stomach how would you feel right Mm-hmm. and that doesn't feel good to them and so when I turn a sheep over to shear it the weight of that rumen pushes right up against the sheep's diaphragm and the sheep feels because it can't uh, like it's suffocating and it struggles to breathe and the way that manifests in the sheep is not just like kicking and fighting us with good reason it's like this um, I'm gonna make this gross sound they're kind of like wheezing through their teeth while they're mm. grinding their teeth. So they'll grind their teeth and then they're like, <laughs> right? This very right. stressful thing. And that in some sheep, you know, some sheep um, are more susceptible to even heart attacks. So I know multiple shearers who have had a sheep either have a heart attack and die between their legs because it was full or one even gave it CPR and saved it. No joke. Oh my goodness. And so it's really, it sounds incredibly cruel. And, you know, there's so much misinformation out there about humane sheep treatment. I mean, some people say sharing is literally skinning sheep alive. So this is the sort of misunderstanding we're fighting. But, you know, it's, you have to say, just like we would not eat overnight for a particular medical scan or a test, like we don't have to eat all night. My dog doesn't have to eat all night. (laughs) Right. Sheep don't have to eat all night. So they can go 
you know, one night without food and water be lots more comfortable when you turn them over and then eat right after they're sheared. You know, they right. can go, go into the food pen and eat. And so, and it's also super dangerous. So in addition, my, my thing is that I can handle it. Like I get kicked anyway, but it's really, really not safe for the sheep. And I now have a policy that, that yes. Yeah, so also they fight that like, right. That's how it manifests to us. Um, is that they're really kicking to get away from us. Who can blame them? Because they would rather be standing with that stomach hanging <laughs> instead of right. pressing up against their diaphragm. So I finally said, you know, and so, I hate to say this. It's, it's just like, I should be clear. It's one or two people, right? Where I've been saying, hey, look at the sheep. I can tell it's full. Even though I do like 48 hours ahead reminders, I call people, remember to get them in, take them off food and water. Here is exactly what I mean by that. Um, They're just struggling and I'm afraid they're going to die on me. And I really don't want to be the cause of that. So I said, if I encounter more, if I show up after all my keep them off food and water warnings and 48 hours ahead and I go through a couple of them and they're all clearly full and in obvious distress I will stop sharing and leave <laughs> and we will have to reschedule for a time when the sheep have actually been kept off of food and water. And before I leave, I will ask to be paid at my new flat rate of hundred dollars an hour, not just for on farm time, which would obviously be minimal if I only sheared a sheep or two because they were full, but then for the time I spent driving to and from the farm. Right. So it sounds really hard, but I just feel like it's really irresponsible for me to continue working. I'm, I'm posing a danger to myself. I'm posing a danger to anybody who's helping. It's dangerous to the sheep. It's really like not good working conditions. <laughs> if we were yeah. in a factory or something, we would try to optimize away from this. So yeah. that's it. And, and I say, if you can't get them in, just tell me. I mean, honestly, I'm really like so much better. If, if you call me the day before even, you know, even the evening before I'm supposed to drive out and you say, we just couldn't get the sheep in and they're still grazing, the dog wouldn't work or they're whatever it is, it's so much better than sharing them full. Right. Yeah. So, and I don't think there's, I don't, I mean, like, I understand that that could be like maybe an unpopular opinion to, you know, the actual, like the shepherd possibly for doing the work to get that done. But at the same time, I feel like that is, I mean, it's best practices. It's, yeah. it is making the situation so much more humane. I mean, truthfully, I mean, mm-hmm. we, when I went to sharing school, we shared, we shared full sheep as well. And it was, it's rough because I mean, not yeah. only, I mean, your working conditions, not only because they're uncomfortable, they don't understand what's going on necessarily, um, depending on their age and how many times oh, they've no, been through definitely, this. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. And so they're just, you know, they're panicking and you're trying to hold them. And then at the same time, they're going to the bathroom on, uh, you know, and you're trying to work on, you know, whether that's uh, plywood or or whatever that is. And then it's slippery and maybe you don't have the same traction and which makes everything dangerous for everybody. And it just, it just exacerbates the situation. So um, I think that's when I read that, I, I mean, that was like, I'm over here, like, applauding and like oh what a great that's fantastic I love it so thanks and I got a few comments people are like you're a baby or like tough enough I'm like that's fine but it's also like ruining the fleece quality yeah then you have urine and poop right in this freshly sheared like year-long growth of fleece you know yeah and I I mean you know whatever I mean everybody does their own business differently but I don't think there's anything wrong with with planting your flag and saying, this is where I stand. And I, I think that's, I think that's great. So well, thank you. Cause I, <laughs> you know, it's also like, it sounds, people are like, really, how's that about humane stuff? Cause we hear about things, right? Like the responsible wool standard or animal welfare standards. And I'm like, but there are these, there are these things that I think if you're not in the business, you don't even know about that really make the difference between a from the sheep's perspective, a humane and not humane experience. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, So that is cool. So we'll go ahead and log that answer in as fantastic. And uh, for the the next thing, and I hate to have to even ask this question, but I feel like 
it begs to be asked. And that is the fact that, so clearly you are a woman who is shearing sheep. And I think the typical thought process is that it's, you know, done by men and, you know, you don't see a whole lot of women doing it though. Like you and I were talking about before we even started recording that I see more and more of it. So it is kind of Mm -hmm. turning, I don't know if it's turning around or if it's different or if I just didn't see it, but, um, what, what is that like, I guess? I mean, does it affect how maybe like a farmer perceives you? Do you feel like, you know, you have to work harder to be physically more prepared? Like, do you feel like you have to do anything to prove yourself, I guess, more or less? Uh, That's a great question. I have a few answers. I'm, I am a terribly not competitive person. (laughs) That I'm like my own, you know, my own worst, worst enemy. Like I have to prove myself to myself and I'm the hardest judge. Um, I will not lie. I have often said that I had the wish that I wish like I had the strength of an 18 year old boy and that I'd started cheering at 13, you know, <laughs> um, but it's, it's hard for me to say perception wise, because I think I just don't have a great data set. So in my, and this is only about me. So I'll talk about that in a minute. The vast majority of farmers who hire me are women. So not all, but most, and a lot of women on family farms are the ones who manage the farm, hire all the people and run the show. Right. So I, I think I might just not be, you know, entering the situation, um, where I'd run into that, but in my overall experience, no matter their gender, farmers just honestly don't even seem to care much about who I am as long as I'm reliable and show up and do the work cleanly and well, basically without drama or hurting their animals. Right. And it's kind of funny because it's like, I get these requests from people and I always ask this question, like who sheared for you before? Because if it's time, I'm I'm letting my secret out. (laughs) If somebody I know to be a really good professional shearer sheared for you before and you don't like them, you definitely won't like me (laughs) (laughs) because they're better than me. Right. (laughs) So we already have like a, a thing going on there. Right. But, but you know, it's, it's, it's that, you know, it's, um, so it's, it's also to say that like my, my individual experience is just not representative here though. So I usually work alone. I run my own business. I know other women shearers who have had very different experiences though such incidents, at least according to them were also rare for them. And I will not repeat some of the comments that they've told me they received Unless you would like me to, but they are really not appropriate for all. Sure, sure. Um, I will say that, you know, tech offices were for me, in my experience, much more like what those other women's shares have described. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this never comes up. I don't know why people think white collar people don't do this. It's like a class bias. Like, oh, those those male shares must be really rough. And I'm like, no, no, like that's not where the problem was. There was foul language and sexual harassment and all the, that was standard fare in an office, right? For me. Yeah. Um, but by contrast, like shearers who are men have been hands down some of my greatest teachers and supporters. So I say, if not for Matt Gilbert and Jordan Reed and especially Jordan Reed, and Ralph McWilliams and Gary Vorderbrucken, who have like shown up for me and really supported me and other women wholeheartedly, I would not be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, so some other thoughts too that, sorry, that what I was kind of forgot before was that what we have going for us, especially with small flock sharing, is that it's not to sound, you know, smug or overconfident, but like folks generally need skilled shearers more than shearers need them. I yeah. think if you're a good shearer, you have probably more work than you can handle. And I refer out probably as much, sometimes more work than I take to other shearers. So I can leave a job and I don't have to come back, right? Yeah. And, and blacklists are real. And I, I say it sounds like scary, but if I have a genuinely terrible customer, and by that I do not mean like somebody who's just having a rough day, you know, somebody who's in pain from a back injury and the sun didn't show up to help or whatever, like all those things happen. And we all have, I've had rough sharing days and my farmers have rough days. I mean like somebody who's really beyond the pale in terms of animal welfare or harassment or failure to pay. Like you're odd once, once in a blue moon customer who's bad. 
I will tell the hundreds of other shearers around the United States in our little online group we have (laughs) not to go there and avoid them at all costs. And like every year, just, you know, every year there's a few of these from around the country. It's like a warning to other shearers. And so I know, I know exactly who said those foul words to, you know, another woman shearer up in Oregon. And I will never, ever work her crew on that ranch. And neither will a lot of other shearers. Wow. (laughs) Right. So it's, why? Because why would you? Right. If you don't have to, if you're not desperate for the work, why would you expose yourself to that sort of situation? So I think we have, as you, as you and I were talking about, you know, before, it's a very small community. We're in touch with each other often just to get people coverage. So, you know, I'll be, I'll, if somebody contacts me to ask if I'm going to be in Colorado, I will do my darndest to find who is in Colorado in the region of where this person needs a share and try to get that person added to their route. But we use that contact with each other for things like you must avoid this particular situation at all costs. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, that's, that's great. Actually. I, I'm encouraged to know that you guys have a network like that, that you can do that and kind of send out a little bit of a message to those farmers too, that, you know, of what's not acceptable, whether or not they figure it out, but <laughs> Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. So how often would you say you do small farms versus like a ranch? Uh, It's almost all small farms where I am in the Bay area. We don't, you know, we're, we're urban and semi-urban and then ex-urban and unlike I'd say in New Mexico and South Dakota, where you have these continuous Mm -hmm. um, properties, we have, you know, people going from a private ranch to BLM land to national forest with the sheep. So that's when there's continuous land to graze, but most everything is divided and so small now that here in my immediate Bay area, kind of Marin, Sonoma, uh, Napa, Solano County areas, like a big farm would be a hundred acres. Okay. And that's not big, right? You know, a big, a big flock would be a hundred or 200 sheep. And you get out Western Nevada, you know, then you're talking thousands and thousands and 50,000 acres and things like that. But I've got to travel to hit those ranch jobs. And, and just in the past few years, I moved side note, I moved my grandmother to California in mid 2017. So elder care has taken up quite a bit of my time. So I've kind of dialed back the amount of time I, I, I'm on the road for a week or two at a time on a crew job. Uh, which makes me sad, but I know it's not forever. So um, it's almost all small farm work for me uh, with the exception of, you know, a few larger jobs that I, I share every year. Sure. So when you, when you do like a crew job, so is that something where you guys like all work together to, to like, like are, is everybody like individually asked? Is one person asked to build a crew and then bring it? Like, how does that work? Yeah, we're, we're more ad hoc. So, you know, some folks, some folks, especially in your, you know, in the region of South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, they're what we call sharing contractors and they get called and they might run multiple crews that are pretty consistent crews. You know, those shearers work together a lot out here since we don't have in our immediate region. So many of those really huge jobs, it usually works as one shearer gets contacted by somebody and they say how many sheep they have. And that shearer decides, do I want to shear these 500 sheep on my own in three days? Or do I want to have two or three people with me, you know, to work through this larger job? And it depends on what we know of the setup. Or it might be in 1,000 or 3,000 or something like that. And then that shearer will generally make a little ad hoc crew of people who want that work and can get to that location. So, you know, somebody might call me. I have 500 sheep and I would say, Hey, Matt and Jordan, I only have three days to do this or two days to do this. Do you want to come and help? And honestly, it's just helpful in so many ways. Like I don't need to have other people help me on a job of that size, but it sure is going to be a lot better with like handling the sheep, doing pens, you know, anything that might happen. Um, I don't like, I, I, uh, I, another new policy I forgot to post about is that I will no longer work alone alone. So when I started cheering, I would show up at people's houses and they would be like, I'm going to work. (laughs) 
have fun. <laughs> oh my goodness. And they would leave me there. I mean, like they've never met me before. I'm like, I'm glad you trust me. But then another year, um, and I, I won't mention him cause I didn't get his permission, but he, he had an accident, a sheep kicked the handpiece. He's a very, very, very good shearer. And the handpiece went into his arm and cut an artery <sighs> right into his left forearm. And the farmer, you know, bundled him up and hightailed it to the hospital. And he ended up having two surgeries to replace that artery. <sighs> and when that shearer's uh, family member went to that barn to retrieve his equipment, she said, he would have died if somebody hadn't have been there. You should have seen the amount of blood in the barn. Uh, and I want all of you to think about working, how, how much you work alone. And if that's something you want to continue to do. And after I heard that story, I was like, yeah, new rule. I'm not working alone anymore. So, Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah I, at all. Like somebody, my customer either has to stay there or be there. Um, and then for these larger jobs where you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, maybe, you know, uh, there's not always a, some of these ranches out here are owned by uh, rich absentee people and they might have maybe like one ranch caretaker who's supposed to get ready for a whole sharing job. They don't really have a crew. They're not like a, a real operating ranch where you might, it's a small business, right? Or you might have 20 or 30 people on staff. So, and that's another benefit of crewing up, even if I'm not going to share all those 500 or a thousand sheep myself, it's going to be a more fun time. We're going to be able to help each other and it's going to actually be safer. Right. Yeah. Those, those hand pieces are scary. They are, they they can be when they get, when they get going, we had somebody at sharing school at like the very last day, like an hour before the technical graduation and he got kicked, came up, nicked him in the arm. Yeah. It is so amazing though. Like those, you know, we had how many instructors, five instructors, I think. And then the SDSU program director was there as well. And the amazing, like swiftness and calmness, they all like knew exactly what to do. All right, you here now we're doing this. He's taking you to the hospital. Go. I mean, it was like, it was so fast, so efficient. And they were so kind and calm. It was, it was impressive. Um, but I imagine they've all seen situations like that happen before. So it just, I I'm getting the chills just thinking about it. Cause it I, yeah, freaks it, me out of it. <laughs> it freaks me out. And I, you know, every year you go, I'm going to like knock on wood. I haven't had it yet. And I keep, you know, <laughs> I'm, that's another reason I don't feel bad about going a little more slowly. <laughs> yeah. And another reason you don't want full sheep because that's the kind of, that's how it ends up, you know? Ugh. Yeah, we're like getting a handpiece kicked, and I'm I uh, I should probably do a blog post on like the the first the level of first aid kit that I carry with me now, and how I keep it in its own box that's super clean and everything's you know not not open to everything else in the toolbox because you've got to be able to get somebody to the hospital. (laughs) Yeah, that's super. That that would be really really interesting to read about. All right, so on top of being a shearer. You wrote a book. So can you tell us about that book and what inspired you to write it? Sure. It is called Raw Material, Working Wool in the West, which is a subtitle I still don't like, but my publisher and I could agree on. And the publisher is the gracious Oregon State University Press. Um, Some other bigger publishers kind of wanted me to change the story. So I didn't want to do that. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. The book... The book grew basically out of little stories that I posted on Facebook, like many of the things we were just talking about. Uh, they were mostly about like my my sweet, unusual, witty, lovely customers and their animals. So I'd get home and I would write a few paragraphs about a particularly wild sharing day or some dumb mistake that I made. And people would say, you should write a book about this. I would totally read it. So I did, but I actually did not want to have myself and my story in it at all because that wasn't what inspired me. So the structure of the book is basically, and there are some exceptions, but each chapter is basically about a different person and their work. Um, And that's what inspired me, right? So I'm out there working and I, all these people I'm meeting are telling me about soil health and what they're doing to improve their pasture health and native grasses and how they're sequestering carbon and, how they're developing local food and fiber markets and 
how you graze for fire control and to not use pesticides and vineyards and rare breeds. And I was like, this is the most important work there is. <laughs> yeah. And, and starting, you know, trying to start a wool mill, like how we, I have to, this is what I have to tell the world about is actually the work these other people are doing. And it's such a hallmark that I'm such a blue collar raised person because one of my frustrations with books is always when nobody has a job, you know, <laughs> You're reading a novel and you're like, what do the characters do to earn a living? What is this in the book? So I really wanted to write about work. And I did a draft and it was very straight up journalistic nonfiction. And my early readers were like, I like this, but who is the narrator and why on earth is this person on this farm? <laughs> I can't. I'm distracted to the point of not understanding why this this like omniscient third person journalistic voice is not is is doing here (laughs) I ended up adding my own story in it to like explain basically the narrator's presence on these farms while still trying to keep it about mostly other people but Mm. there's lots of entertaining and self-effacing sharing stories because you know I I think also as I worked on it was when I so as I was drafting the book was when uh, the PETA anti-wool campaigns were really ascendant and mm. starting to make their way into the public eye. And I was like, wow, that's really, really not true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, shearing sheep is really absolutely not like that. And so I felt a little better, including stories about shearing and how you try so hard to be good at it and how t- I was so terrified of hurting an animal. Like, Aww. you know, my my worst my worst nightmare was was is like nicking a sheep right so yes so i i i felt a little less egocentric putting in those stories because i also just wanted to have the truth of a practice and a craft in there and then you know i have a little bone to pick when people after what i after what i went through and what you went through right you 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 might feel the same way after that sharing school experience, when I heard the term unskilled agricultural labor, I thought I was going to hit somebody mm. because mm-hmm. it is anything but unskilled. <laughs> yes. It takes Knowing so how to handle much work. a sheep. It's like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah. No, really, though. And even building a fence properly, like all these things that people labor unskilled. I'm like, you might say that. Have you tried to build a fence? <laughs> <laughs> have you tried to like trick a you into taking a lamb that wasn't hers by like skinning a dead lamb because i i challenge you to do that without any skill you know <laughs> oh my gosh so that's, that's the book and uh then there's this a mini saga in the book is um the the exception to the kind of the one chapter about one person in their work is that there are several chapters devoted to uh, Sarah and Matt Gilbert of Mendocino Woolen Fiber and their struggle to open a wool mill in this day and age when people really don't even understand what that is. Yeah, that's cool too. That's that's also been something that's been really interesting to learn more about are those mills and how there's there's a tiny bit of like small family revival of them. Tiny yes. bit, but hopefully that continues to progress and so hard one so hard one <laughs> yeah it sounds like it's just it's I mean even just like getting the equipment getting set up I mean and uh-huh. then you have to learn how to process all the different fleeces and all the weird fleeces and, set and your, your water and the soap you use yeah. and the static <laughs> yeah and if you want to be like uh you know uh eco-conscious one that's even you know then you've got 900 other battles to fight too it's just crazy crazy stuff yeah well okay so you so now we know that you share you've written a book and you also know how to program and you're <laughs> the president of the it's it I, I think i'm right in this it's the northern california or california <laughs> is it <laughs> uh, the northern california fiber shed cooperative right yeah, we know what you mean. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So tell me what that entails. Like, what are your responsibilities? And then how on earth 
do you have time to do this on top of everything else? Like, I totally don't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. I was like, I could just lie or I could just be honest. And at the risk of sounding whiny, like, I, I'm now like this person who sort of preaches sustainability without sustaining myself, which is <laughs> a real disservice on calling for things like true cost accounting, right? And you know, all these principles of holistic management and <laughs> planning for rest, like you plan for profit. Like I can't say I'm, I've actually been following those. Um, I'm totally depleted and burnt out. Aww. So, um, but so my current, yeah, my current responsibilities, and I'll get into a little bit about the co-op and kind of how it started at risk of being too long, but I handle a lot of money. I support a lot of events. I've done a lot of fundraising. Um, it's like a part-time unpaid CEO position that used to be a full-time CEO position for real. Um, and it's a voluntary position. So we created this cooperative, me and other board members, to initially bring back the Fibershed Marketplace, which is fibershedmarketplace.com, that had existed in a different form in like 2012 and 2013. So... It was, it's, it's an online marketplace where all of the farmers, you know, fiber artisans and uh, wool producers in our region can sell their value added goods. So a lot of the marketplace operations around it had to change. So like a lot of early versions of things, it was like, it was all attached to one person's social security number. All of the farmers shared a single login, all of these things that were not going to scale and that didn't work with things like tax reporting, right? <laughs> So that all these producers in our in our region wanted to have, as we were talking about, a, a way to sell that business. But as we all know, farmers and ranchers don't all have time to build and maintain websites, handle online shops, do all their little Facebook and Instagram marketing around that business. Like it's a whole other business <laughs> to have right. to having uh, fiber growth. So our goal was to take kind of take care of that for them. And so every board member took a three or four year term when we drew straws. So mine was three years and this is the beginning of my third year. And so we did in this, so 2018 was like first full year. We did all the not fun bureaucracy and legal stuff of creating a business entity in our case, an ag co-op and that would hold the marketplace, you know, and all future products and programs. So that's all lawyer sales tax permits, state of California board of equalization, bylaws, fundraising, all the super not fun things you have to do to start an ag co-op. And then once we had all that squared away, which that all happened like late 2017 into early 2018, then we set out to build the technically the marketplace that the wool producers and artisans had asked for. And because of that tech work we talked about, I was kind of the only person who would have the, the background and the reasonable time to manage and oversee all of that. So that's kind of how I ended up president because I was willing to do that. Like I said, I'll only do it for farmers. Um, and so designing that marketplace, that was all the technical requirements, policies, rules. One of my catchphrases is every line of code is a human decision. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, helping to build that, but also manage the web team um, to build the bulk of it, which was graciously done at a substantial discount by somebody I'd gone to grad school with. Um, and so that just getting that all done, you know, different accounts, it's like, a, it's basically Etsy for farmers. We kind of irresponsibly rebuilt Etsy for farmers. And so <laughs> that's, that's been running now, October of 2019 marked uh, the fiber shed marketplace running for a year. And every year we try to do as a co-op, a different project to return money to our producers. So I will spare you my philosophical ranting on this, but I'm a geographic wealth distribution <laughs> redistributionist between like cities and farms. I think we really need to be returning more money to farms and rural communities. So we are experimenting with different ways to do that. So 2018 was launching the online marketplace. 2019, we experimented with more like urban pop-ups. So we did like mm. a fancy targeted, like a, a San Francisco on the marina looking at the Golden Gate Bridge invite only pop-up. We did San Francisco Ferry Building Farmers Market. We did like Lambtown Festival, just experimenting with getting our members' goods out into pop-up situations. And we'll do more of that. But then in 2020, we're looking at 
how we help our members who only do raw wool instead of, you know, value added products also to get their truly regenerative, humanely sheared wool into the fashion industry. So, you know, larger fashion brands that are looking for really responsibly sourced materials, how can our co-op help move that raw wool at a good price uh, to the, to the brands that are asking for that. So they, I may not lead it forever <laughs> as, a, as president and I kind of don't believe in presidents for life at any level, <laughs> So, but I hope I've helped it get off to a decent start and, we, we have boosted farmer income for sure. I think last year I just tallied it up for an annual report and I think it was like $26,000-ish back to farms. Not too many of them. Wow. So that's, you know, you start small, but you keep hoping you just keep sending more money back to them. Yeah, that's really, that's really neat. I really like that. That's, uh, it's kind of a unique take on it too, especially trying to move all that stuff back into the fashion industry that's oh, that's so cool because that's all the stuff that I always look for when I'm trying to buy clothes you know? right and it's kind of hard to to find that necessarily all the time I mean right now it feels like linen is huge you know like you yeah. know responsibly sourced linen is huge but you know you don't see as much like responsibly sourced or locally sourced wool products kind of finding their way back into fashion so I love it yeah so I'm, cool. Thank you. Thank you. It's 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 definitely felt like a very very worthwhile endeavor. And you know, we have to when I'm when I get really frustrated, right? Like like you, I'm in an REI and I can't even look at the clothing tags because it's plastic. It's reformulated yes. plastic and they're like this is eco and I'm like I'm just going to go outside before I start causing problems. But you know, we on my on my darker moments to get out of them, I just remind myself, like, really, as I've dug into this, and especially talking to fashion brands and how they source and how they mill things, we are literally still using practices that date back to the Industrial Revolution. Like, some of the chemical dyes we use date back to the Industrial Revolution. Like, they're still coal tar-based, you know? And so it took us a long time to get into the situation. And I have to remind myself that it will take us a long time to get out. <laughs> so you have to start somewhere and it feels like it's never enough and it's never fast enough. <laughs> you yeah. know, we, we have to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I mean, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think it is, you know, something like what you're doing is still, I mean, it is still something and it's, it's more than, I mean, a lot of people feel like they even have the capability to get their hands into to do, you know, like around here, I don't see anything like that happening. You know, there's nothing like that, that I, I feel like I could be a part of necessarily. I mean, that I know of at least. So at least you have that opportunity there. So that's, I applaud that as well. I applaud a lot of the stuff you're doing. So I'm just over here clapping for you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'll replay it when I need it. So what do you have? What What's next for you in your, in the future? Like, what do you have coming up? What are you working on? Anything interesting? Oh, sharing, sharing, sharing. Sharing, sharing. Uh, <laughs> well, this year I, I, I'm hoping some of my, some of my customers in the past or some folks would call me and say, you know, I really, really want to learn how to share the few sheep I have. Would you teach me? So I've added private instruction and I'm hoping some folks take me up on that because I'm excited to teach people how to handle and shear their own sheep. Actually, I think that's great. Um, I'm going to Missoula in March. So this is a very scary thing. I'll be talking to grad students at an MFA program Ooh. that's being taught. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Ana Maria España, is teaching environmental writing, I think, at University of Montana. And so I get to talk to a very intimate – I don't have an MFA, so I get to talk to grad students. And I just love Montana. Like, Montana stole my heart in 2018. Um, don't worry. This Californian is not, uh, unfortunately, moving to Montana. Anyone listening in Montana? Californian's <laughs> always moving to Montana. Um <laughs> And then I'm speaking at uh, Plyaway in April in Kansas City, big spinning conference, and wow. at, and at the Curacao Designs Retreat in Petaluma in early May, the first full weekend of May, I think. And then I'm also speaking, um, doing the keynote for the Flag Wool Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona, at the end of May. Wow. Which is crazy. I'm super terrified, but I'm working hard on all of those things already and have been since. 
my gosh. No, you yeah. said, I think you'll, you'll do just fine. Oh, you really will. <laughs> that's really, that's really impressive. That is so cool. So thank you. Okay. I'm excited to see them. I love Kansas city and I've never been to Flagstaff, oh. but you know, my love for the Navajo churro as I was talking about yes. like that. I'm so excited to see more of that region and what is going to be at that festival and the people at that festival. So that is super exciting. So what about if more people want to try to contact you to get you to speak or they just want to find you online? Where can they do that? Oh, um, my website, uh, there's my old West by Midwest.me website is floating around, but I don't maintain it as much. I, I was having, I was maintaining these separate identities for writing and sharing and I'm like, forget it. So my website is now stephaniewilkes.com, which is spelled kind of funky. It's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-Y. W I L K E S dot com. And I am Lady Sheep Shearer, all one word on Instagram, where a lot of folks find me. So those are the two best. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I will, I will go ahead and I will link to all of that in our show notes. Thank and you. yes, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for your work and the stories you put out there. I love your show, and I was just over the moon when invited. So thank you. As always, you can find Links to all the things that we talked about in today's episode on my website at woolanddye.com slash podcast. So that's W-O-O-L-A-N-D-D-Y-E dot com slash podcast. And we will see you next time.